edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. I'm Amy Fiedler. I'm one of the cardiothoracic surgery fellows here at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Douglas Matheson regarding tracheal stenosis. Dr. Matheson is the chief of thoracic surgery here at the Massachusetts General Hospital and the Hermes Grillo Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. He's certainly a leader in the field of tracheal stenosis and it's a pleasure to discuss with him this topic today. So Dr. Matheson, we're going to start with a clinical scenario. The patient presents following a complex postoperative course, including tracheostomy after a major abdominal surgery. The patient was discharged ultimately to a rehabilitation unit and was decannulated in the unit over two months ago. The patient currently complains of progressively worsening dyspneon exertion and strider over the last few weeks. How would you evaluate and treat this patient? So, uh, Amy, it's good to be with you. Uh, glad to have this opportunity to uh, share my thoughts about the management of patients with uh, tracheal stenosis. This particular patient uh, brings up an important point uh, in that anybody who's had uh, an intubation or a tracheostomy and comes back within the first three months of that event with shortness of breath should uh, be presumed to have tracheal stenosis rather than some other uh, explanation for it, which may be the case, but one should presume they have tracheal stenosis. If they present to the emergency ward uh, from this rehab facility, uh, short of breath, a simple x-ray oftentimes will demonstrate uh, uh, some abnormality in the trachea if you specifically look for it. Um, uh, the most important thing is physical exam listening for stridor. Uh, it depends on uh, the severity of their uh, uh, stridor as to how you manage it. Obviously, somebody who's an extremis uh, is a lot different than somebody who's comfortable at rest and does have uh, noisy or stridorous breathing. Um, I think the other important thing is that uh, one shouldn't really uh, jeopardize the patient's uh, safety by sending them off for uh, CAT scans and things of that sort. Uh, when you're uncertain of their airway. Um, ideally, if they have tracheal stenosis, uh, there are uh, simple things that you can do that usually tide people over. Uh, the use of heliox, diuretics, uh, oxygen, sitting them upright with some humidity uh, oftentimes uh, quiets them down and allows you to uh, evaluate them further. If you have to get x-rays and you think the airway is stable, a CAT scan, the neck and chest, the ability to see the airway in three different views, axial, sagittal, and coronal, will usually identify a stenosis, where it is, how tight it is, and give you valuable information. Um, no one should have to have an emergency trachea resection, and so the key initially is just airway management. Uh, the best way to manage a, a patient who requires some intervention is in the operating room. A flexible bronchoscopy in the emergency ward could precipitate uh, a crisis uh, and so if there's concern and something needs to be done it should be done in the operating room. Um, that management of the airway has to be coordinated with the anesthesiologist. They have to have a plan about how to put the patient asleep. Uh, ideally uh, it could be done uh, under general anesthesia. We use intravenous uh, uh, TIVA, uh, total intravenous uh, anesthetic techniques. That's been very safe. The surgeon should be in attendance. You need to have 
uh, bronchoscopes, rigid bronchoscopes, balloon dilators, whatever you're comfortable with to secure an airway and, and dilate it. Um, so that's the initial management. Great. So after, let's say that this patient in question was stable from an airway perspective and is admitted to the hospital ward, mm -hmm. you then proceed on, as you've discussed, taking the patient down to the operating room under controlled conditions and performing a bronchoscopic examination. On your examination, you note that the patient has an anteriorly pointed arrow-shaped stenosis that's occurring at the level of the prior tracheotomy. How would you manage this? Well, what you described sounds like a stomal stenosis. Uh, it's typically described as an A-shaped stenosis, um, and the membranous wall is not involved typically. It's the way the uh, stoma heals and contracts that forms that kind of uh, uh, abnormality. That's in distinction to the circumferential stenosis, which is usually more of a cuff injury. Mm -hmm. And in terms of managing it, uh, if it compromises the patient's uh, breathing, it ultimately needs to be corrected. Uh, again, you would want to sort through any other medical issues, have the patient uh, uh, off steroids. Oftentimes they come in on steroids. You want to wean the steroids for healing purposes. Uh, but if it's a significant uh, narrowing and it uh, is symptomatic, it should be corrected with a tracheal resection and reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So in this specific patient, is there any role for tracheal dilation in the interim as you're preparing the patient for operative intervention? The typical tracheal stenosis, yes. Uh, the circumferential uh, uh, stenosis uh, should be dilated until you've solved all the other uh, ancillary issues. Uh, stomal stenoses really don't dilate. Uh, you can pass uh, any uh, size of rigid bronchoscope through it and that's because the membranous wall is uh, uninvolved and therefore you can stretch but as soon as you come back through it re resumes its uh, previous shape. So most patients you can tide them over, uh, do your evaluation and then do the operation. Great. And before we move towards the operative management of a tracheal um, resection, can you comment on those patients who would be a candidate for a tracheal resection versus those patients who you would deem inoperable? Yeah, so uh, I'd say almost everybody's a candidate. Uh, remember, they had some underlying medical illness that was severe enough that they ended up intubated or having a trach. So those things uh, are, are common to almost all patients who have post-intubation stenosis. Um, and the severity of their illness can range widely. Um, and as long as the other comorbid conditions are under uh, reasonable control, uh, most everybody can tolerate uh, tracheal resection. It's done in the neck, you're not invading a body cavity, uh, and it's really just the status of their comorbid conditions. Bronchoscopically, the things that would make them inoperable are um, involvement of an extensive length of the trachea, but the, usually the first time post-intubation cuff or stomal stenosis almost always can be corrected surgically. Uh, we prefer T-tubes if you're not planning on a reconstruction. Uh, it's, I think, a much better airway for patients. Uh, they prefer it. They can speak. They don't have to worry about the issues of a uh, tracheostomy, it does require care, but it would be the alternative to uh, resection. And it brings up the point that on assessment, uh, you want the mucosa to be non-inflamed, you want the length of the uh, involved 
uh, abnormal segment to be evaluated and usually to be three or four centimeters or less. Uh, those are the ones that uh, are correctable. Great. And as moving forward, taking this patient to the operating room for a tracheal resection, can you comment not only on the patient positioning but key operative steps mm -hmm. in order to ensure a successful outcome? Well, the most important thing is securing the airway, and this requires careful cooperation between you and the anesthesiologist. Uh, if it needs to be dilated, then you should dilate it. People need to be familiar with rigid bronchoscopes or at least have familiarity with them. Um, you can use balloons. Some people like to evaluate the airway through a, a laryngeal mask uh, with flexible bronchoscopy and a balloon dilator. Um, and you need to dilate the airway enough so you can put a small endotracheal tube. I usually use a five and a half endotracheal tube. You don't want to dilate it beyond that because you could injure or, or uh, traumatize the airway. The patients are positioned on their back. We use a thyroid bag under their shoulders to extend their neck, uh, and that's the position. The, the incision is usually a collar incision uh, placed according to where the uh, injury is. Um, and then probably the key steps are the careful uh, uh, identification of the location of the injury. If you're uncertain, sometimes you can't tell externally by palpating the airway, then you want to pull the endotracheal tube back with a flexible bronchoscope inserted, uh, place a, a needle or TB needle into the airway so you can define the extent of the injury where it starts and stops. Once you're certain of where it is, then you want to dissect very carefully circumferentially around the area of injury, staying absolutely on the trachea to avoid the recurrent nerves. We make no attempt to identify them. They're usually uh, uh, in, uh, in, involved in scar tissue, so trying to identify them, you could injure them. Um, then you have to secure uh, the airway. Once you've uh, opened the airway, we do it with uh, cross-field ventilation, sterile tubing, connecting tubing, handed off to the anesthesiologist, and then uh, brief periods of apnea by taking the endotracheal tube out uh, and replacing it as, as need be. Uh, it's important not to take any more than necessary of the airway, so you want to define the, uh, the limits of resection. Um, uh, we use traction sutures uh, to help keep the uh, trachea in the field and at the end to approximate the two ends. We like an open technique, careful placement of the sutures. If there's a size discrepancy, that can be managed by placing the sutures either closer or further apart to accommodate size discrepancies. Uh, once we have completed the uh, sutures, we clip them carefully to the drapes. Uh, we uh, uh, deflate the thyroid bag, flex the neck, bring the two traction sutures together, tie them, and then tie the individual anastomotic sutures, usually in reverse order in which they're placed. So the first suture that's placed at 6 o'clock posteriorly is the last suture to be tied. Uh, and this technique, open technique, uh, individual anastomotic sutures has worked well. That's great. And do you extubate the patient in the operating room? It's a very good point. I think all patients should be extubated. Um, if there is a technical problem, if there's edema, uh, you want to identify it in the operating room. Uh, if that's the case, you can always place a small endotracheal tube, uh, wait 48 hours for edema to subside. If there's some concern that it's uh, an inadequate or marginal airway, you might decide to place a protecting tracheostomy. 
that should be used very infrequently. Uh, it means that you probably haven't uh, chosen the right patient. Uh, and a protecting tracheostomy ought to be at least two rings below the anastomosis. You ought to place a, a muscle, a strap muscle, over the anastomosis to separate that tracheostomy from the anastomotic suture line. That's a great point. And in terms of the immediate postoperative care of this patient, how long do these patients remain in the hospital, and are there any steps which you would emphasize which uh, helps with a, with a smooth postoperative course? I'd add also that the technical aspects, once done with an anastomosis, I cover the anastomosis on every patient with a strap muscle. Uh, that serves as a buttress. It separates it from the innominate artery if it's nearby. Uh, and in the case that I mentioned of a protecting tracheostomy. We also flex the neck at the very end uh, to reduce the tension uh, and place a chin stitch which keeps the patient from extending their neck. It's not meant to sew the chin to the chest like some people think. Um, so at the end you extubate them. They have the neck in flexion. This chin stitch is in. We usually send them to the ICU one for one night just to observe them, be certain they don't have any immediate airway problems. Uh, the routine here has been to rebronchoscope them at seven days, cut their chin stitch if everything is healing, uh, release them at that point. I tell people to be really careful for about three weeks, no lifting, no driving, uh, no uh, excessive extension of their neck, and to use pillows and when they're sitting around to uh, reduce any tension on the anastomosis. Uh, at three months, they're completely healed and can really have unlimited activities. After three months, do you continue to follow these patients with routine bronchoscopies? No, I don't think that's necessary if they're doing well. Uh, a lot of these patients come from far away, and usually I think it's important to see them at a month, either here or with their referring doctors. They can get simple x-rays and send them. Uh, but as long as they're doing well and have a good airway, there's no reason to. Uh, rebronchoscope them or reevaluate them. Of course, if there's a problem, then you would want to do that. That's great. And any final thoughts on the management of patients with tracheal stenosis? Um, I would say one thing about uh, uh, swelling, um, if, and that's probably the most common thing that occurs in maybe 15 or 20 percent of patients, especially if you've done a high reconstruction near the uh, glottis. Um, uh, typically, we've treated them with steroids. I use 10 milligrams of decadron. Uh, initially, and then four milligrams IV Q6 hours, uh, sitting them upright, oxygen, diuretics, uh, heliox if there's an issue. And that has generally got us through uh, a period of swelling, which usually occurs uh, between uh, 48 hours and five days. Uh, it can occur earlier or later, but uh, that's probably the most important thing to be aware of in excessive steroids are bad because of their uh, impact on healing. Great. Thanks so much for talking with okay. us, Dr. Matisse.